Welcome back to another episode of Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along with Womance. I am your odd chapter reader, Morgan. And your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And this week we find ourselves on the cusp of chapter 11, which is, you said it, an odd chapter. So I'll be reading this one. Um, Isabel, could you give us a recap of chapter 10? Transition chapter, wherein we skip eight years ahead in the life of our dear Jane. Her best friend, Miss Temple, got married, and she has all these stirring feelings that her life is not enough for her. So she applies for a position outside of Lowood School, and she gets accepted by one Mrs. Fairfax at Thornfield Hall in Millcote. And she begins her life there, but before she leaves, we see Bessie again, who gives her all the hot gas from Gateshead, and we are ready to begin our journey to Milkut. All right, chapter 11. A new chapter in a novel is something like a new scene in a play. How uninsightful. I feel like this one was probably like, you know, what did they call it? Like screen tested too many times? Yeah. And when I draw up the curtain this time, reader, you must fancy you see a room in the George Inn at Millcott, with such large figured papering on the walls as inn rooms have, such a carpet, such furniture, such ornaments on the mantelpiece, such prints including a portrait of George III and another of the Prince of Wales, and a representation of the death of Wolf. Hmm. What's that? I don't know. I don't have a note about it in mine. I don't either. How did they assume we would know that? I'm going to Google it real quick. Okay. Because it sounds so interesting. It's very weird. It's weird the things like you skip over when you're not reading out loud. The Death of General Wolf is a painting. Depicts the Battle of Quebec, also known as the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, on September 13, 1759. This was a pivotal event in the Seven Years' War and decided the fate of France's colonies in North America. The British army was commanded by General Wolfe. Romance novels, even at this point, are obsessed with the Seven Years' War. All this is invisible to you by the light of an oil lamp hanging from the ceiling, and by that of an excellent fire, near which I sit in my cloak and bonnet. My muff and umbrella lie on the table, and I am warming away the numbness and chill contracted by 16 hours' exposure to the rawness of an October day. I left Loughton at 4 o'clock a.m., and the Millcott town clock is now just striking 8. Reader, though I look comfortably accommodated, I am not very tranquil in my mind. I thought when the coach stopped here, there would be someone to meet me. I looked anxiously round, and as I descended the wooden steps, the boots placed for my convenience, expecting to hear my name pronounced and see some description of carriage waiting to convey me to Thornfield. Nothing of the sort was visible, and when I asked a waiter if anyone had come to inquire after a Miss Eyre, I was answered in the negative, so I had no resource but to request to be shown to a private room. And here I am waiting, while all sorts of doubts and fears are troubling my thoughts." It is a very strange sensation to inexperienced youth to feel itself quite alone in the world, cut adrift from every connection, uncertain whether the port to which it is bound can be reached, and prevented by many impediments from returning to that it has quitted. The charm of adventure sweetens the sensation, the glow of pride warms it, but then the throb of fear disturbs it, and the fear with me became predominant when half an hour elapsed, and still I was alone. I bethought myself to ring the bell. Is there a place in this neighborhood called Thornfield? I asked of the waiter who answered the summons. Thornfield? Don't know, ma'am. I'll inquire at the bar. He vanished, but reappeared instantly. Is your name Aramis? Yes. 
person here waiting for you. I jumped up, took my muffin umbrella, and hastened into the inn passage. A man was standing by the open door, and in the lamp-lighted street I dimly saw a one-horse conveyance. This will be your luggage, I suppose, said the man rather abruptly when he saw me, pointing to my trunk in the passage. Yes. He hoisted it on the vehicle, which was a sort of car, and then I got in. Before he shut me up, I asked him how far it was to Thornfield. A matter of six miles. How long shall we be before we get there? Happen an hour and a half. He fastened the car door, climbed to his own seat outside, and we set off. Our progress was leisurely and gave me ample time to reflect. I was content to be at length so near the end of my journey, and as I leaned back in the comfortable though not elegant conveyance, I meditated, much at my ease. I suppose, thought I, judging from the plainness of the servant and carriage, Mistress Fairfax is not a very dashing person. So much the better. I never lived among fine people, but once, and I was very miserable with them. I wonder if she lives alone, except this little girl. If so, and if she is in any degree amiable, I shall surely be able to get on with her. I will do my best. It's a pity that doing one's best does not always answer. That's true. At Lowood, indeed, I took that resolution, kept it, and succeeded in pleasing. But with Mrs. Reed, I remember my best was always spurned with scorn. I pray God, Mrs. Fairfax, may not turn out a second Mrs. Reed. But if she does, I'm not bound to stay with her. Let the worst come to the worst. I can advertise again. How far are we on our road now, I wonder? There is something so freeing about not being gentry and, and having a job and being able to say goodbye to the job if, if you don't care for it. Totally. I mean, like, that's also an illusion, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Mrs. Reed rears her head again, and it's like... She looms large. Once again, I don't feel like Jane is being very fair to Mrs. Reed, or I don't think the book is being very fair to Mrs. Reed. Yeah, I think Jane doesn't actually have the capacity to be fair to Mrs. Reed, because Mrs. Reed lives so large in her memories as a child, and then she's entirely cut off from Mrs. Reed for all of her adolescence. The only thing that she has of Mrs. Reed are her childhood memories, where Mrs. Reed was truly a monster. I think even as we get older, there's no... No one I can remember from childhood. That's not true. There was a girl who started in everyone but Morgan Club. Mm-hmm. And I cannot remember her any differently, even knowing her into my teens. The other thing about this, I feel like we've done a disservice because I forgot that from Jane's perspective, Mrs. Fairfax is the lady of the house. Mm-hmm. And we might have implied otherwise oh, yeah. <laughs> in our previous discussions. My other thing that I want to point out is that Jane is really excited to return to a totally femme environment, right? She's like, ugh. Yeah, she is. She's stoked on it. Hopefully it's just me and this lady and this little girl. And she's about to get hit with a masculinity stick. All right, she doesn't even know it's coming. It's gonna make her so very horny. Foreshadowing. If I can spoil the future. Like, morally destructively horny. (laughs) Ethically ambiguously horny. Okay, let's get there. I let down the window and looked out. Milcott was behind us, judging by the number of its lights. It seemed a place of considerable magnitude much larger than Lowton. We were now, as far as I could see, on a sort of common, but there were houses scattered all over the district. I felt we were in a different region to Lowood, more populous, less picturesque, more stirring, less romantic. Oh yeah, this is a transition period in England. Industrialization. The roads were heavy, the night misty. My conductor let his horse walk all the way, and the hour and a half extended, I verily believe, to two hours. At last, he turned in his seat and said, You're none so far from third. (laughs) No, God forgive us. I had to read dialectical dialogue just now. 
I am so embarrassed as to be frozen from moving forward. You want to try that one again? You're known so far fro Thornfield. Now. You're not. You're not so far from Thornfield now. Okay, that's what he said. You're not so far from Thornfield now. I apologize. I apologize to you. I apologize to Vesper the dog. I apologize to everyone who just heard that. I apologize to Nick. I'm so sorry. It's okay that you don't have a Yorkshire accent, Morgan. Uh, oh, Yorkshire. It's North. It's not Cockney. <laughs> hey. It's, I don't know. What's the difference? So Yorkshire is closer to Scotland, which is why it has... I love that you're giving me a very sincere answer now. Continue. <laughs> That's why it has the longer vowels. You're nun, right? It sounds more like a Scottish brogue than it does like... You read it. You're nun so far from Thornfield now. That was not better than mine. No, it wasn't. It was better than mine. It was better than mine. But it was very Scottish. You really leaned on your idea of accent progression. It's not an idea. You should see people talk about this. It's why the accents in England are so hard. Anyway. Again, I looked out. We were passing a church. I saw its low, broad tower against the sky, and its bell was tolling a quarter. I saw a narrow galaxy of lights, too, on a hillside, marking a village or hamlet. Maybe that's why he doesn't know about Thornfield. There's this other place. About ten minutes after, the driver got down and opened a pair of gates. We passed through and they clashed together behind us. We now slowly ascended a drive and came upon the long front of a house. Candlelight gleamed from one of the curtained bow windows. Curtained bow window. All the rest were dark. The car stopped at the front door. It was opened by a maidservant. I lighted and went in. Will you walk this way, ma'am? said the girl, and I followed her into a room, whose double illumination of fire and candle at first dazzled me, contrasting as it did with the darkness to which my eyes had been for two hours inured. And I could see, however, a cozy and agreeable picture presented itself to my view. She's dazzled. Dazzlement. Fire. We're getting there. A snug small room, a round table by a cheerful fire, an armchair high-backed and old-fashioned, wherein sat the neatest imaginable little elderly lady in widow's cap, black silk gown, and snowy muslin apron. Exactly what I had fancied, Mrs. Fairfax, only less stately and milder looking. She was occupied in knitting. A large cat sat demurely at her feet. Nothing, in short, was waiting to complete the beau ideal of domestic comfort. A more reassuring introduction for a new governess could scarcely be conceived. There was no grandeur to overwhelm, no stateliness to embarrass. And then, as I entered, the old lady got up and promptly and kindly came forward to meet me. How do you do, my dear? I'm afraid you have had a tedious ride. John drives so slowly. You must be cold. Come to the fire. Mrs. Fairfax, I suppose, said I. Yes, you are right. Do sit down. She conducted me to her own chair and then began to remove my shawl and untie my bonnet strings. I begged she would not give herself so much trouble. Oh, it is no trouble. I dare say your own hands are almost numbed with cold. Leah, make a little hot negus. A drink of sweetened wine and hot water. Is there anything worse sounding than negus? Sounds like something that comes out of your ear. And cut a sandwich or two. Here are the keys of the storeroom. And she produced from her pocket a most housewifely bunch of keys and delivered them to the servant. Now then, 
draw nearer to the fire, she continued. You've brought your luggage with you, haven't you, my dear? Yes, ma'am. I'll see it carried into your room, she said, and bustled out. She treats me like a visitor, thought I. I, little experienced such a reception, I anticipated only coldness and stiffness. This is not like what I have heard of the treatment of governesses, but I must not exult too soon. She's so naive. Slowly, slowly. <laughs> she returned with her own hands cleared, her knitting apparatus and a book or two from the table to make room for the tray which Leah now brought, and then herself handed me the refreshments. I felt rather confused at being the object of more attention than I had ever before received, and that too shown by my employer and superior. But as she did not herself seem to consider she was doing anything out of her place, I thought it better to take her civilities quietly. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing Miss Fairfax tonight? I asked when I had partaken of what she offered me. What did you say, my dear? I'm a little deaf. She returned the good lady, approaching her ear to my mouth. She repeated the question more distinctly. Miss Fairfax? Oh, you mean Miss Varens? Varens is the name of your future pupil. Indeed. Then she is not your daughter. No, I have no family. I should have followed up my first inquiry by asking in what way Miss Varens was connected with her, but I recollected it was not a polite to ask too many questions. Besides, I was sure to hear in time. I am so glad, she continued, as she sat down opposite to me and took the cat on her knee. I am so glad you are come. It will be quite pleasant living now with a companion. To be sure it is pleasant at any time, for Thornfield is a fine old hall, rather neglected of late years perhaps, but still it is a respectable place. Yet, you know in winter time one feels dreary, quite alone, in the best quarters. I say alone. Leah's a nice girl, to be sure. And John and his wife are very decent people. But then, you see, they're only servants, and one can't converse with them on terms of equality. One must keep them at due distance for fear of losing one's authority. I'm sure last winter, it was a severe one, if you recollect, and when it did not snow, it rained in blue. Not a creature, but the butcher and postman came to the house, from November till February. And I really got quite melancholy with sitting night after night alone. I had Leah in to read to me sometimes, but I don't think the poor girl liked the task much. She felt it confining. In spring and summer, one got on better. Sunshine and long days make such a difference. And then, just at the commencement of this autumn, little Adela Verens came and her nurse. A child makes a house alive all at once. And now you are here, I shall be quite gay. My heart really warmed to the worthy lady as I heard her talk. And I drew my chair a little nearer to her and expressed my sincere wish that she might find my company as agreeable as she anticipated. What a class traitor. I didn't realize. But I'll not keep you sitting up late tonight, says she. It is on the stroke of twelve now and you have been traveling all day. You must feel tired. If you have got your feet well warmed, I'll show you your bedroom. I've had the room next to mine prepared for you. It is only a small apartment, but I thought you would like it better than one of the large front chambers, to be sure they have finer furniture. But they are so dreary and solitary. I never sleep in them myself. I thanked her for her considerate choice, and as I really felt fatigued with my long journey, expressed my readiness to retire. She took her candle, and I followed her from the living room. First, she went to see if the hall door was fastened. Having taken the key from the lock, she led the way upstairs. The steps and banisters were of oak. The staircase was high and latticed. Both it and the long gallery into which the bedroom doors opened looked as if they belonged to a church rather than a house. A very chill and vault-like air pervaded the stairs and gallery, suggesting cheerless ideas of space and solitude. And I was glad when finally she, when finally ushered into my chamber to find it of small dimensions and furnished in ordinary and modern style. When Mrs. Fairfax had bid me good night and I had fastened my door, gazed leisurely around and in some measure effaced the eerie impression made by that wide hall, that dark and spacious staircase and that long cold gallery 
by the livelier aspect of my little room, I remembered that after a day of bodily fatigue and mental anxiety, I was now at last in a safe haven. The impulse and gratitude swelled my heart, and I knelt down at the bedside and offered up my thanks where thanks were due, not forgetting, ere I rose, to implore aid on my further path and the power of meriting kindness, which seemed so frankly offered to me before it was earned. My couch had no thorns in it that night, my solitary room no fears. At once weary and content, I slept soon and soundly. When I woke, it was broad day. This is really interesting. I feel like this chunk is like, I was really laboring to get through it. But I think we're really like, she is in a liminal moment right now, you know? Yeah, I mean, she still thinks that Mrs. Fairfax, who's the housekeeper, is the lady of the hall. Like, that hasn't been dispelled yet, even though Mrs. Fairfax is like, we're gonna sleep in the smaller, cheerier, smaller rooms. Also, like, we have to keep the servants at a distance, and Leah doesn't like to read, and... Mrs. Fairfax is a really interesting character, but I'm also thinking about the fact that, like, Jane's, when she comes into Thornfield Hall, her actual view of the space is so limited it's so dark and she's dazzled by candlelight by the fire right and uh that's just a big metaphor Mm -hmm. there are things in the shadows she cannot see clearly what's going on in thornfield hall can she neither can miss fairfax (laughs) yeah it's just so big and dark it's impossible for any one person to perhaps fully view it even the housekeeper all right when i awoke it was broad day The chamber looked such a bright little place to me as the sun shone in between the gay blue chintz window curtains, showing papered walls and a carpeted floor, so unlike the bare planks and stained plaster of low wood, that my spirits rose at the view. Externals have a great effect on the young. I thought that a fairer era of life was beginning for me, one that was to have its flowers and pleasures, as well as its thorns and toils. My faculties, roused by the change of scene, a new field offered to hope, seemed all astir. I cannot precisely define what they expected, but it was something pleasant, not perhaps that day or that month, but an indefinite future period. I rose, dressed myself with care, obliged to be plain, for I had no article of attire that was not made with extreme simplicity. I was still by nature solicitous to be neat. It was not my habit to be disregardful of appearance or careless of the impression I made. On the contrary, I ever wished to look as well as I could, and to please as much as my want of beauty would permit. I sometimes regretted that I was not handsomer. I sometimes wished to have rosy cheeks, a straight nose, and small cherry mouth. I desired to be tall, stately, and finely developed in figure. I felt it a misfortune that I was so little, so pale, and had features so irregular and marked. And why had I these aspirations and these regrets? It would be difficult to say. I could not then distinctly say it to myself. Yet I had a reason, and a logical natural reason too. However, when I had brushed my hair very smooth and put on my black frock, which, Quaker-like as it was, at least had the merit of fitting to a nicety, and adjusted my clean white tucker, ye old dicky. I thought I should do respectably enough to appear before Mrs. Fairfax, and that my new pupil would not at least recoil from me with antipathy. Having opened my chamber window and seen that I left all things straight and neat on the toilet table. Whenever she says her face is marked, do you think that means she has, like, pimples and stuff? I think it means that she has freckles. Oh, okay. Oh, cute. I know. I was kind of hoping it was pimples. I mean, they could be, but I mean, in the day, being marked usually meant freckles. Yeah, my real question was, what did that mean back then? So, 
I guess I'll have to accept that she has freckles. If you don't look milky white and consumptive, you're not a beautiful person in this era. Here's my deal. I do look milky white and consumptive, but I am marked in the pimple way. Adult acne, kids. Oh, God. Hormonal acne is the worst. It also, like, functions in such a weird way. Like, I never had, like, chin strap acne before. I'm like, what is this? Why now? It hurts. I don't like it. On the bones. Unenjoyable. So if you're a teen right now and you are suffering with acne and you look at another teen who has perfect skin, just know they may someday (laughs) get walloped with it when they turn 25. And then that sucks. Traversing the long and matted gallery, I descended the slippery steps of oak. Then I gained the hall. I halted there a minute. I looked at some pictures on the walls. One I remember represented a grim man in a curious piece of armor, breast and back plates. And one a lady with powdered hair and a pearl necklace. At a bronze lamp pendant on the ceiling. At a great clock whose case was of oak, curiously carved. An ebon black with time and rubbing. Everything appeared very stately and imposing to me, but then I was so little accustomed to grandeur. The hall door, which was half of glass, stood open. I stepped over the threshold. It was a fine autumn morning. The early sun shone serenely on embrowned groves and still green fields, advancing onto the lawn. I looked up and surveyed the front of the mansion. It was three stories high, proportions not vast, though considerable. A gentleman's manor house, not a nobleman's seat. Battlements around the top gave it a picturesque look. Its gray front stood out well from the background of a rookery, whose cawing tenants were now on the wing. They flew over the lawn and grounds to a light in a great meadow, from which these were separated by a sunk fence and were an array of mighty old thorn trees, strong, knotty, and broad as oaks, at once explained the etymology of the mansion's designation. Further off were hills, not so lofty as those round Lowood, nor so craggy, nor so like barriers of separation from the living world, but yet quiet and lonely hills enough, and seeming to embrace Thornfield with a seclusion I had not expected to find existence so near the stirring locality of Millcott. A little hamlet, whose roofs were blunt with trees, straggled up the side of one of these hills. The church of the district stood near Thornfield. Its old tower top looked over a knoll between the house and gates. I was yet enjoying the calm prospect and pleasant fresh air, yet listening with delight to the cawing of the rooks, yet surveying the wide hoary front of the hall and thinking what a great place it was for one lonely little dame like Mrs. Fairfax to inhabit when the lady appeared at the door. Wait, what? Out already? said she. I see you are an early riser. I went up to her and received with an affable kiss and shake of the hand. How do you like Thornfield? she asked. I told her I liked it very much. Yes, she said. It is a pretty place, but I fear it will be getting out of order unless Mr. Rochester should take it into his head to come and reside here permanently, or at least visit it rather oftener. Great houses and fine grounds require the presence of the proprietor. Mr. Rochester, I exclaimed. Who is he? Yes, pray tell. Mr. Rochester, (laughs) I exclaimed. Who is he? That's absolutely not the (laughs) tone. But that is the tone of me knowing we got a little Orson Welles action. Oh my god, yes, the best Rochester. (laughs) The owner of Thornfield, she responded quietly. Did you not know he was called Rochester? Of course I did not! I had never heard of him before. The old lady seemed to regard his existence as universally understood fact, with which everybody must be acquainted by instinct. Oh man, Thornfield is Miss Fairfax's Lowood. Totally, totally. I thought, I continued, Thornfield belonged to you, 
to me. <laughs> Bless you, child. What an idea to me. I am only the housekeeper, the manager. <laughs> Petite bourgeoisie. I am the manager. <laughs> To be sure, I am distantly related to the Rochesters by the mother's side, or at least my husband was. He was a clergyman, incumbent of Hay, that little village yonder on the hill, and that church near the gates was his. The present Mr. Rochester's mother was a Fairfax, and second cousin to my husband, but I never presume on the connection. In fact, it is nothing to me. I consider myself quite in the light of an ordinary housekeeper. Oh my god. My employer is always civil, and I expect nothing more. Whatever, Mrs. Fairfax. I never bring it up, but here it is. I never bring it up. I, in fact... The third thing I'm going to tell you about myself <laughs> that I never bring up. I never even speak of it. I only expect civility, and even that I take with utter gratitude. I make the girl read to me even though she clearly hates it, but I never expect. <laughs> I never expect anything. Oh, here we go. We got a little juicy niblet on the way. And the little girl, my pupil. <laughs> oh, when people show you who they are, believe them. She is Mr. Rochester's ward. He commissioned me to find a governess for her. He intends to have her brought up in blank shire, I believe. Here she comes with her balm, <laughs> as she calls her nurse. <laughs> The enigma then was explained. This affable and kind little widow was no great dame, but a dependent like myself. I did not like her the worse for that. On the contrary, I felt better, pleased than ever. The equality between her and me was real, not the mere result of condescension on her part. So much the better. My position was all the freer. As I was meditating on the discovery, the little girl, followed by her attendant, came running up the lawn. I looked at my pupil, who did not in fact appear to notice me. She was quite a child, perhaps seven or eight years old, slightly built with pale, small, featured face, and a redundancy of hair falling into curls to her waist. Whoa. Just my ward. Just my beautiful cherubic child. Just this kid I found. Only speaks French. Just this French kid. <laughs> I can't believe Miss Fairfax didn't, like, immediately, like, spill. Uh, don't worry, she will. It just seems like she should have sooner. I guess in the morning light, it's difficult to be, like... A shitty person? Not a shitty person! Just explain the circumstances more fully. A gossip. It's not gossip! The context that Mrs. Fairfax is, like, given to spill at certain times, she's, like, an information hoarder, and she doles it out in amuse-bouches. And also, like, not the most important stuff that would actually keep Jane safe or, like, give her the full context of the scene to, like, better manage her own comportment. Miss Fairfax is controlling, but the way in which she controls the situation and environs she finds herself in is by doling out information and keeping other stuff secret. Yeah. The ways we wield the small amounts of power we hold. Exactly. Good morning, Miss Adela, said Mrs. Fairfax. Come and speak to the lady who is to teach you and to make you a clever woman someday. She approached. C'est la ma gouvernante. Gouvernante? Gouvernante. I assumed governess would be the same. <laughs> said she, pointing to me and addressing her nurse, who answered, Mais oui, certainement. That means, but yes, of course. That is your governess. Duh. Are they foreigners? I inquired, amazed at hearing the French language. <laughs> oh my god. The nurse is a foreigner, and Adela was born on the continent. 
thus a foreigner maid. And I believe never left it till within six months ago when she first came here. She could speak no English. Now she can make shift to talk it a little. I don't understand her. She mixes it so with French. But you will make out her meaning very well, I dare say. I think this is actually, we shouldn't glide over this. The attendant is a foreigner. The little girl was born on the continent. Is the significance in like the amount of time one lived or is it specifically where the attendant is from? Or who's your father? No, I'm talking about the governess's racial identity mm-hmm. and where she is from. Not the governess, but the attendant, I mean. The nurse. The nurse, yeah. I didn't understand this as racialized, but I understood that Adele is not a foreigner because of who her father is. See, I don't know because like that could be it, but the idea of like someone being a foreigner and someone being from the continent, I don't know. Maybe you're right, but knowing what we're going to learn about Joanna, I think it's possible that maybe the nurse is from Jamaica as well. Potentially. I mean, there's plenty of racialized stuff that's going to come up at the end that I don't probably need to... But maybe it's insinuated earlier on than I ever understood before. Just something to chew on. Fortunately, I had the advantage of being taught French by a French lady. And as I always made a point of conversing with Madame Perrault as often as I could and had, besides during my last seven years, learned a portion of French by heart daily, applying myself to take pains with my accent and imitating as closely as possible the pronunciation of my teacher, I had acquired a certain degree of readiness and correctness in the language and was not likely to be much at a loss with Mademoiselle Adela. She came and shook hands with me when she heard that I was her governess, and as I led her into breakfast, I addressed some phrases to her in her own tongue. She replied at first, but after we were seated at the table, when she had examined me some ten minutes with her large hazel eyes, she suddenly commenced chattering fluently. Ah, she cried in French, you speak my language as well as Mr. Rochester does. I can talk to you as I can talk to him, and so can Sophie. She will be glad. Nobody here understands her. Madame Fairfax is all English. Sophie is my nurse. She came with me over the sea in a great ship with a chimney that smoked. And how it did smoke. And I was sick. And so was Sophie. And so was Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester lay down on a sofa in a pretty room called the salon. And Sophie and I had little beds in another place. I nearly fell out of mine. And I was like a shelf. And Mademoiselle, what is your name? Eyre. Jane Eyre. Eyre. Bah. I cannot say it. Well, our ship (laughs) in the morning before it was quite daylight at a great city, a huge city with very dark houses and all smoky and not at all like the pretty clean town I came from. And Mr. Rochester carried me in his arms over a plank to the land and Sophie came after and we all got into a coach which took us to the beautiful large house larger than this and finer called a hotel called an hotel. We stayed a great nearly week, and I and Sophie used to walk every day in a great green place full of trees called the park, and there were many children there besides me, and a pond with beautiful birds in it, and I fed them crumbs. Can you understand her when she runs on so fast? Asked Mrs. Fairfax. I understood her very well, for I had been accustomed to the fluent tongue of Madame Poirot. I wish, considered the good lady, you would ask her a question or two about her parents. I wonder if she remembers them. Adele, I inquired, with whom did you live when you were at that pretty clean town you spoke of? I lived long ago with Mama, but she has gone to the Holy Virgin. Mama used to teach me to dance and sing and to say verses. A great many gentlemen and ladies came to see Mama, and I used to dance before them or to sit on their knees and sing to them. I liked it. Shall I let you hear me sing now? I 
love little Adele, and she is one of those characters, not unlike Mary from Persuasion, where I think I'm the only person who likes them, but I love little Adele. I think she's hilarious and honest, and like, I think she like gets it. I think you're reading her with all the charm that this character really has to bring to bear. She is like a breathless little kid who's just like really excited that somebody else can talk to her in the language that she's like most accustomed. She's ready and able. She's a charmer. She's a little ham. She's a little ham. She's got a lot of hair. She's got a pretty face. She's got a dynamic personality. Wonder what her mom is like. I also love, I loved long ago. I love when little kids add like a little bit of like gravitas to their existence. I do too. I think it's the sweetest thing in the world. She had finished her breakfast, so I permitted her to give a specimen of her accomplishments. Descending from her chair, she came and placed herself on my knee, enfolding her little hands demurely before her, shaking back her curls, and lifting her eyes to the ceiling. She commenced singing a song from some opera. It was the strain of a forsaken lady who, after bewailing the perfidy of her lover, calls pride to her aid, desires her attendant to deck her in her brightest jewels and richest robes, and resolve to meet the false one that night at a ball and proved to him by the gaiety of her demeanor how little his desertion has affected her. It's a great song for a seven-year-old to sing. So cute. It's so cute whenever they sing, like, the little girl singing Memory from Cats. So cute. (laughs) And also, like, once again, that, like, flattening of time. Anyways, the subject seems strangely chosen for an infant singer. (laughs) Not for me and Isabeau. We love it. Get over it, Jane. (laughs) Give her the oldest lady song we can find. But I suppose the point of the exhibition lay in hearing the notes of love and jealousy warbled in the lisp of childhood. In very bad taste, that point was. At least I thought so. Fuck off, Jane. You don't understand it. So much is going on with class in this chapter, too. True. Super true. Adele sang the canzonette tunefully enough. Bitch. And with the naivete of her age, confidence is what that means. This achieved, she jumped from my knee and said, Now, mademoiselle, I will repeat you some poetry. Assuming an attitude, she began, La Ligue de Rat, Fable de la Fontaine. She then declaimed the little piece with an attention to punctuation and emphasis, a flexibility of voice, and an appropriateness of gesture, very unusual indeed at her age, and which proved she had been carefully trained. Was it your mama who taught you that piece? I asked. Yes. And she used to say it in this way. Qu'avez-vous donc? Lui dit un de ses rappelés. She made me lift my hand, so to remind me to raise my voice at the question. Now, shall I dance for you? No, that will do. But after your mama went to the Holy Virgin, as you say, with whom did you live then? With Madame Frédéric and her husband. She took care of me, but she is nothing related to me. I think she is poor, for she had not so fine a house as Mama. I was not long there. Mr. Rochester asked me if I would like to go and live with him in England, and I said yes, for I knew Mr. Rochester before I knew Madame Frédéric. And he was always kind to me, and he gave me pretty dresses and toys. But you see, he was not kept his word, for he has brought me to England, and now he has gone back himself, and I never see him. After breakfast, Adele and I withdrew to the library, which room, it appears, Mr. Rochester had directed should be used as the schoolroom. Most of the books were locked up behind glass doors, but there was one bookcase left open, containing everything that could be needed in way of elementary works, and several volumes of light literature, poetry, biography, travels, a few romances, etc. I suppose he had considered that these were all the governess would require for her private perusal, and indeed, they contented me amply enough for the present, compared with the scanty pickings I had now 
and then been able to glean at Lowood, they seemed to offer an abundant harvest of entertainment and information. In this room too, there was a cabinet piano, quite new and of superior tone, also an easel for painting and a pair of globes. I found my pupil sufficiently docile, though disinclined to apply. She had not been used to regular occupation of any kind. I felt it would be injudicious to confine her too much at first, so when I talked to her a great deal and got her to learn a little, and when the morning had advanced to noon, I allowed her to return to her nurse. I then proposed to occupy myself till dinner time in the drawing room, some little sketches for her use. As I was going upstairs to fetch my portfolio and pencils, Mrs. Fairfax called out to me. Your morning school hours are over now, I suppose, said she. She was in a room and folding doors, the folding doors of which stood open. I went in when she addressed me. It was a large stately apartment with purple chairs and curtains, a turkey carpet, walnut-paneled walls, one vast window rich in stained glass, and a lofty ceiling, nobly molded. Mrs. Fairfax was dusting some vases of fine purple spar, which stood on a sideboard. Spar is a lustrous mineral. What a beautiful room, I exclaimed as I looked round, for I had never seen anything half so imposing. Yes, this is the dining room. I've just opened the window to let in a little air and sunshine, for everything gets so damp in apartments that are seldom inhabited. The drawing room yonder feels like a vault. She pointed to a wide arch corresponding to the window, and hung like it with Tyrian dyed curtains now looped up. Mounting to it by two broad steps and looking through, I thought I caught a glimpse of fairy place. So bright to my novice eyes appeared the view beyond. Yet it was merely a very pretty drawing room, and within it a boudoir, both spread with white carpets on which seemed laid bright garlands of flowers, both sealed with snowy moldings of white grapes and vine leaves, beneath which glowed in rich contrast crimson couches and ottomans, with ornaments on pale Parisian mantelpiece, were of sparkling bohemian glass, ruby red, and between the windows, large mirrors repeated the general blending of snow and fire. I do love white carpets and red furniture. It's not to everyone's taste. In what order you keep these rooms, Mrs. Fairfax, said I. No dust, no canvas coverings. Except the air feels chilly, one would think they were inhabited daily. Why, Miss Eyre, though Mr. Rochester's visits here are rare, they are always sudden and unexpected. And as I observed that it put him out to find everything swathed up and to have a bustle of arrangements on his arrival, I thought it best to keep the room in readiness. It's Mr. Rochester, an exacting, fastidious sort of man. I have a rather long note on this one, and I'd like to read it for you. Mr. Rochester, the name is possibly drawn from the poet and rake John Wilmont, Earl of Rochester, 1647 to 1680. In a letter to W.S. Williams, 14 August 1848, Bronte carefully distinguishes Rochester's character from that of Mr. Huntington and Anne's the tenant of Wildfill Hall and Heathcliff of Emily's Wuthering Heights. Mr. Rochester has a thoughtful nature and a very feeling heart. He's neither selfish nor self-indulgent. I don't know if I believe that. He is ill-educated, misguided, errors. When he does err, though, rashness and experience are the reason. He lives for a time as too many other men live, but being radically better than most men, he does not like that degraded life and is never happy in it. He is taught that severe lessons of experience and has sense to learn wisdom from them. Years improve him. The effervescence of youth has foamed away from him. What is really good in him still remains. His nature is like wine. Time cannot sour, but only mellows him. Such, at least, was the character I meant to portray. Well, the people we mean to portray and the people we are bound to portray. Hmm? Hmm.
Is Mr. Rochester an exacting, fastidious sort of man? Not particularly so, but he has a gentleman's taste and habits, and he expects to have things managed in conformity to them. Do you like him? Is he generally liked? Oh, yes. The family has always been respected here. Almost all the land in the neighborhood, as far as you can see, has belonged to the Rochesters. Time out of mind. Well, but leaving his land out of the question, do you like him? Is he liked for himself? I have no cause to do otherwise than like him, and I believe he is considered a just and liberal landlord by his tenants, but he has never lived much among them. But he has no peculiarities? What, in short, is his character? Here meaning moral qualities or reputation rather than personality in the modern sense. Oh, his character is unimpeachable, I suppose. He's rather peculiar, perhaps. He has traveled a great deal and seen a great deal of the world, I should think. I dare say he is clever, but I never had much conversation with him. I feel like, oh, his character is unimpeachable, I suppose. That suppose is doing a lot of work. In what way is he peculiar? I don't know. It is not easy to describe. Nothing striking, but you feel it when he speaks to you. You cannot be always sure whether he is in jest or earnest, whether he is pleased or the contrary. You don't thoroughly understand him. In short, at least, I don't, but it is of no consequence. He is a very good master. I'm already getting like a little like, <laughs> This was all the account I got from Mrs. Fairfax and her employer and mine. There are people who seem to have no notion of sketching a character or observing and describing salient points, either in persons or things. The good lady evidently belonged to this class. My queries puzzled, but did not draw her out. It's so bitchy sometimes, but also like, that's so true. I know. I think we all know people like that. And it's like, why am I even talking to you? Why are you being this evasive? Mr. Rochester was Mr. Rochester in her eyes. A gentleman, a landed proprietor, nothing more. She inquired and searched no further, and evidently wondered at my wish to gain a more definite notion of his identity. When we left the dining room, she proposed to show me over the rest of the house, and I followed her upstairs and downstairs, admiring as I went, for all was well arranged and handsome. The large front chambers I thought especially grand, and some of the third-story rooms, so dark and low, were interesting from their air of antiquity. The furniture once appropriated to the lower apartments had from time to time been removed here. As fashions changed and the imperfect light, entering by their narrow casements, showed bedsteads of a hundred years old, chests in oak or walnut looking, with their strange carvings of palm branches and cherubs' heads, like types of the Hebrew Ark, rows of venerable chairs, high-backed and narrowed, stools still more antiquated on whose cushioned tops were not yet apparent traces of half-effaced embroideries, wrought by fingers that for two generations had been coffin dust. All these relics gave to the third story of Thornfield Hall the aspect of a home of the past, a shrine of memory. I liked the hush, the gloom, the quaintness of these retreats in the day, but I by no means coveted a night's repose on one of those wide and heavy beds, shut in, some of them, with doors of oak, shaded, others, with wrought old English hangings, crusted with thick work, portraying effigies of strange flowers and stranger birds and strangest human beings, all which would have looked strange, indeed, by the pallid gleam of moonlight. Did the servants sleep in these rooms, I asked. No, they occupy a range of smaller apartments to the back. No one ever sleeps here. One would almost say that if there were a ghost at Thornfield Hall, this would be its haunt. So I think you have no ghost then. 
None that I ever heard of, returned Mrs. Fairfax, smiling. Nor any tradition of one? No legends or ghost stories? I believe not. And yet it is said, the Rochesters have been rather a violent than a quiet race in their time. Perhaps, though, that is the reason they race tranquilly in their graves now. Yes, after life's fitful fever, they sleep well, I muttered. Where are you going now, Mrs. Fairfax? For she was moving away. On to the leads. Will you come and see the view thence? I followed still, the very narrow staircase to the attics, and thence by a ladder, and through a trapdoor to the roof of the hall. I was now on a level with the crow colony, and could see into their nests. Leaning on the battlements and looking far down, I surveyed the grounds laid out like a map, the bright and velvet lawn closely girdling the gray base of the mansion, the field wide as a park dotted with its ancient timber, the wood dun and sere, divided by a path visibly overgrown, greener with moss than the trees were with foliage. The church at the gates, the road, the tranquil hills, all responding on the autumn day's sun. The horizon bounded by a propitious sky, azure, marbled with pearly white. No feature in the scene was extraordinary, but all was pleasing. When I turned from it and repassed the trap door, I could scarcely see my way down the ladder. The attic seemed black as a vault, compared with that arch of blue air to which I had been looking up, and to that sunlighted scene of grove, pasture and Green Hill, of which the hall was the center, and over which I had been gazing with delight. Mrs. Fairfax stayed behind a moment to fasten the trap door. I, by dint of groping, found the outlet from the attic and proceeded to descend the narrow garret staircase. I lingered in the long passage to which this led, separating the front and back rooms of the third story, narrow, low, and dim, with only one little window at the far end, and looking, with its two rows of small black doors all shut, like a corridor in some bluebeard's castle. Dun, 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 dun. While I peered softly on, the last sound I expected to hear so still a region, a laugh struck my ear. It was a curious laugh, distinct, formal, mirthless. I stopped. The sound ceased. Only for an instant. It begun again. Louder, for at first, though distinct, it was very low. It passed off in a clamorous peal that seemed to wake an echo in every lonely chamber, though it originated button one, and I could have pointed out the door whence the accents issued. Mrs. Fairfax, I called out, for I now heard her descending the great stairs. Did you hear that loud laugh? Who was it? Some of the servants, very likely, she answered. Perhaps Grace Poole. Did you hear it? I again inquired. Yes, plainly. I often hear her. She sews in one of those rooms. Sometimes Leah is with her. They're frequently noisy together. The laugh was repeated in its low, syllabic tone and terminated in an odd murmur. Grace! exclaimed Mrs. Fairfax. I really did not expect any Grace to answer, for the laugh was as tragic, as preternatural a laugh as any I had ever heard. And but that it was high noon, and that no circumstance of ghostliness accompanied the curious cachination, but that neither scene nor season favored fear. I should have been superstitiously afraid. However, the event showed me I was a fool for entertaining a sense even of surprise. The door nearest me opened, and a servant came out, a woman between thirty and forty, a set, square-made figure, red-haired, and with a hard, plain face, any apparition less romantic or less ghostly could scarcely be conceived. Too much noise, Grace, said Mrs. Fairfax. Remember directions. Grace courtesied silently and went in. She is a person we have to sew and assist Leah in her housemaid's work, continued the widow. Not altogether unobjectionable in some points, but she does well enough. 
By the by, how have you caught on with your new pupil this morning? The conversation, thus turned on Adele, continued till we reached the light and cheerful region below. Adele came running to meet us in the hall, exclaiming, Mesdames, vous êtes service, adding, J'ai bien moi. We found dinner ready and waiting for us in Mrs. Fairfax's room. Big chapter. A lot of setup. Big chapter. A lot of setup. So on the nose. So much of the setup is like very on the nose as well. That's true. A lot about class and all the different rankings of lower than Rochester. And also how ruthlessly Mrs. Fairfax is going to keep that in position. And also the idea that like Adele is also of the same class as Jane. Mm -hmm. Just in a different way. We would say working class, I suppose. But an educated working class, which makes her different than Leah and Grace. Who are of a service class, I would say, which is maybe a little bit different. And also the idea that like Jane has these vague memories from her early childhood of a really well-run house. I mean, that interim has probably been able to develop a lot of like romantic ideas about big old Greystone houses. And now that she's seeing one in practice, I think those ideas are kind of coloring her experience of them she's making assumptions about ghosts right hearing that eerie laugh but one of the things that's so striking is that in this chapter all of the problems that are going to come up at the very end that are going to come to a head at the very end are already there Mm -hmm. it's weird i never thought of thornfield as like creepy other than the attic space but like (laughs) i totally forgot about the colony of crovids (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like living in the glory behind and like you get to the parapet and like you can see into their nest and they're just like moving from the trees to the quarry and like this whole like colony of crovids. Yeah, it's a very eerie place. It's more modest than I remember it being. It's not like Pemberley. Right. It's not even like a decrepit Pemberley, which is how I think I understood it. That whole scene where like Mrs. Fairfax is like cleaning that really beautiful and old room with all this antique furniture that nobody uses. And she's like, well, I can't keep it swathed up because Rochester hates the nuisance of showing up without giving us any advanced warning and like having all of the furniture and drop cloths. I was like, fuck Rochester. (laughs) But like, do you think that's true or do you think it's Miss Fairfax? Good point. I work with all of these people and they approach their side of the job with such like intensity. And it's like they have to believe their job is that important to like justify waking up in the morning. You know, Mrs. Fairfax is a housekeeper for a house with no master, essentially. It's true. How lonely. It's funny, the Michael Fassbender version of this film, it's weird what parts of it have really imprinted on me because like I am only seeing Mrs. Fairfax as Dame Judi Dench, Mm -hmm. which is both good and bad. I think obviously Judi Dench is an incredible actress who brings a lot of sympathy to this kind of unsympathetic character in moments. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't really have anything else to say. I feel like we might have given too much away already. Oh. But then I'm like, it's always just right there, isn't it? It is. It's right on the page. Yeah. From the moment we arrive. All right. Well, with that, I will just bid you to loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah. <laughs>